Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Ian McLaughlin. Ian shares some stories about a commercial janitorial business that had a dramatically increase in their gross margins and profitability the year before it sold. However, the source of the profits wasn't from excellent execution or a dramatic increase in sales. When the buyers found out why the performance was so good, they sued the seller. Learn what the entrepreneur did to inflate his profits and what you should not do when you are positioning your business for sale. A juvenile-based sports manufacturing and import company had multiple offers on the table, but decided to aggressively counter all of these offers. All of the counter offers were flatly rejected. A year later, the business was sold for the book value of the inventory. Why did the entrepreneur reject all of these offers? Listen and learn. The takeaways here are worth their weight in gold. Time and time again, different variations of the same story is shared here on the podcast. Get multiple strategic bidders at the table and interesting things can happen. Here's one more story that entrepreneurs should take note of when they begin to think about positioning their business for sale. Multiple buyers at the table can create a feeding frenzy. And sometimes being in the right place at the right time just happens. You can't plan for it. Sometimes you can't even hope for it. But when it happens, you need to focus on not doing something that will just screw up the sale. This is Business Exit Stories. Today, we're here with Ian McLaughlin. Ian, would you just take a minute or two and talk a little bit about your company, a little bit about where you're located, and then we can jump in and chat a little bit about some of the transactions you've been involved in over the years. So, Ian, give us some uh, background on yourself and your company. Sure. I uh, founded Business Team in 1982 uh, as a business brokerage and lower middle market brokerage firm. And we've done about 7,000 transactions since then. Small businesses under 100 million in revenues, privately held. We are generalists. We do all types of businesses. Uh, We have offices uh, on the West Coast from Southern California up to Seattle. And that about is the story of business team. Okay, well, great. And so... 7,000 transactions over the last multiple decades. You probably have come across some unique and challenging situations when you're representing the sellers. I guess you're primarily on the sell side. Is that right? Actually, we're dual agents in almost every situation. We're the listing agent and we usually represent the buyer. I mean, we do work with outside brokerage firms if they have a buyer, but the industry typically is closed in terms of dealing with outside brokers. So let's talk a little bit about some of those transactions you've been involved in that didn't go all that well, maybe closed. You were able to hold it together to get them across the closing line. Why don't you share something, maybe something more recent? I mean, I know you've been doing this for decades, 
but maybe something more recent that kind of reflects some of the challenges that buyers and sellers have when they're dealing in exiting a business? Well, one that comes to mind is the, a janitorial business that we sold uh, about a, a year or so ago, and it was um, quite profitable. So when you say janitorial, you're talking about commercial businesses, right? Yes. Going into offices and things of that nature and doing large-scale janitorial, I guess, would be a way to put it. Yes. Uh, they had large office buildings and other businesses that they did maintenance for. So when you say they, was this husband and wife, partners? What type of operation was it? It was two brothers, and they were partners. And just getting to that age where they wanted to step out of the business and retire, that was the driver to consider selling? Yes, it was, and and something they had started planning for maybe a year or so earlier. So how did the transaction unfold? Well, buyer made an offer, and it was accepted, and then entered into a due diligence phase and signed off and close the transaction. I imagine that these size of transactions in a janitorial business, it involves some sort of financing. What type of financing was involved here? Was it a traditional bank loan or was it an SBA loan? It was an SBA loan. And you probably know the SBA does their own due diligence. Uh, They get the tax returns directly from the IRS and have their team go through the financials to support the loan. Shortly after, though, the closing, the buyers found out that the sellers had been skimping on the service for some time, missing scheduled visits, uh, cutting back on personnel. So let me understand that comment there. When you say skimping on services, so traditionally janitorial service like this comes in once a week or twice a week to do the janitorial work and do the cleaning. And what you're saying is that they really started cutting back on that, even though they probably had an agreement or a contract in place that required them to be there on a set schedule or multiple times during a month. And they just started to cut back. What was the motivation for doing that? Just bad operations or was there some ulterior motive going on here? Well, hard to pin down a motive, but one possibility is that they wanted to lower their costs. Uh, The huge cost in that business is labor. And so if the contract calls for five days a week maintenance and you skip a day or two or you send out instead of three people you send out one then costs go down margins improve and the business looks more profitable so you made an interesting comment a little earlier that these were brothers that started planning in advance a year or two in advance they started thinking about selling and somewhere along that line they figured that well if we have bigger and better margins, that's going to drive more to the bottom line, and that's going to increase the value of our business. And so we get a higher price for selling if we can show better profitability. And the way they were going to show better profitability was, as you say, quote, skimping on services. And I'm just curious, did anyone pick up on that during due diligence? No, um, neither the bank uh, nor the buyers. one of whom was quite sophisticated. It just didn't occur. And they could possibly have learned about it if they had done some 
customer surveys prior to closing. So what would that have looked like if you looking back on this right now for our audience out there anticipating that they're going to be exiting and so a buyer may do a customer survey what would that look like in this particular situation if you had the benefit of hindsight what should the buyers have probably done and what would that survey have looked like well uh, first off there was some customer concentration some of the clients of the business were accounted for a large portion of the revenue ah that's even more problematic. Yes, it is. Yeah. So there are companies that will do independent QC surveys for you. QC meaning quality control? Right. Customer satisfaction. Or they could do it themselves, uh, posing as people just trying to gauge, let the owners know if customers are satisfied. You're saying that they could call up and say, I'm thinking of using ABC commercial janitorial service here. How's your experience been? And are you happy with the service type of thing? That's what you're talking about? Right. But they didn't do any of that, huh? And they just thought the margins were great. And apparently the SBA loan committee and that looked at this loan and the financial statements, they didn't pick up on anything that was unusual, I guess. They just looked at the margins and the profitability and stamped approved on the loan application. Yes. Yes, they did. And the tip-off might have been the change in margins over the last year. I would imagine that if you're cutting back on services and let's say they go maybe twice a week and they cut back on one week out of the month, that's 25%. So that would be a dramatic drop in labor associated with the cost of providing the services and a pretty big jump in margins over the last year or so. That should have been a red flag anyway. Yes, uh, in hindsight, certainly. Uh, but in general, when there's a uh, customer concentration issue, that QC should be attended to. And for our audience out there, the customer concentration, do you recall what that was? Was it 20%, 30%, 50 You know, Do you remember exactly how much that concentration was focused I don't remember exactly. I think if I recall, the business was doing about $5 million and there were one or two customers that were doing 20 or 15%. That can become problematic if they decide to leave. And I guess if they aren't getting the service they expected, the probability of them leaving is pretty high. And what happened? So the buyers bought the business and they started noticing that customers weren't happy and they started canceling contracts. Is that kind of how the story goes here? Yes. Defection had already taken place and also complaints had been mounting. And that's when it came out that the service cutbacks had occurred. So the buyers did immediately lose some business. And what happened? I mean, did the business struggle and the buyers just buck it up and try to build back up the business? Did they approach the sellers? What happened? Well, the business immediately turned into a negative cash flow situation, uh, even though they had a payment forgiveness for the SBA, a six-month program. So this was during the pandemic? Uh, yes. So for those in the audience, the uh, SBA... Uh, loan provisions uh, allowed six months of payments to be forgiven under certain criteria. And that was a big help, I'm sure, when you're borrowing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars uh, to buy a business, those forgiveness of monthly loan payments can become substantial. So they qualified for that and were given the benefit of having that to help increase their cash flow. What else happened? The buyer's sued the sellers once they had verified that the business was in different shape than 
what they had been told. And they settled quite quickly in mediation. And they still had challenges with the business. Uh, some of the employees, a number of employees had left. There was some, some dissatisfaction. There were buyers themselves were partners. And one of the partners, had, I guess, got so burned out with the experience that he opted to leave the partnership. And so the business was put back on the market and uh, and resold. And do you know if the buyers came out underwater or even, or did they make a little money after reselling the business? I think they came out even. Um, they were fortunate in a number of ways. The the loan forgiveness was a big help. The and the settlement. Um, the mediation settlement was a big help. Well, I guess if we're looking in what can be learned from a transaction like this, what would you say the two big takeaways are in this transaction? I would say that the major takeaway is if there's customer concentration, you absolutely should insist upon some kind of survey. And if the customers had been smaller, you know, one or two percent, and some of them had defected, it wouldn't make any difference. That that should have taken place. The other, perhaps more difficult to put your finger on, would be the change in margins. Why did that happen? And perhaps there should have been some interviewing of some of the management um, other than the owners. Of course, sellers don't like that to, to take place because that blows the confidentiality of the sale. Yeah, it's kind of a challenging environment where the owners want to keep the sale under wraps so that people don't get freaked out and decide that they aren't going to have a job and go looking for a job. So there's always a tightrope to walk. But in this particular case, there were probably some other things they could have done to satisfy themselves on the customer concentration and the you know, the relative happiness of, you know, the customers, were they pleased with the service and things of that nature. But uh, to me, the most telling thing is, is that all of a sudden the margins go, and I'm just pulling numbers out of the air here, but margins go from a cost of sales type of margin, jumps 10%, jumps 15%. Uh, you know, why did that happen? Is it just good management or was there something else underlying the quite dramatic changes in margin over a relatively short period of time? That should have been a red flag. Well, I'm quite surprised that the bank didn't kind of pick up on that either, especially an SBA loan where the criteria that you have to meet. It's kind of like jumping through hoops sometimes. Yeah, although sometimes they get hung up on the wrong information, but they certainly missed it here. They missed it this one. So I guess what you're telling me is that when they sold, uh, they were lucky to get out with their finances intact. They didn't lose a bunch of money. They lost a lot of time and probably got a few gray hairs from the experience, but in a stressful situation, so much so that one of the partners decided to bail and not continue with the business, which I guess triggered the other partner not wanting to really continue with the business and, and to put it back up for sale. So, you know, I guess for our audience out there that are listening in, if you're a seller looking 
to position that business for an exit someday is that you want to take a look at those type of issues knowing that you know the buyers are going to do some type of due diligence and you have to think ahead of what that due diligence is going to be and how you can prepare for it so appreciate you sharing that story that's a kind of a little bit different twist on a story that we haven't heard about in a long time on here on the podcast so Ian tell us about another transaction you mentioned that this transaction took place during the pandemic. Do you have another story or two that related to a pandemic issue? Uh, Yes. Um, Of course, uh, almost all our transactions within the last uh, year have uh, been affected one way or the other by the pandemic. One that was negatively affected was a uh, manufacturer importer of sports equipment and I think they were doing about 15, 20 million a year in revenue. And they had listed it with us and we brought a number of offers and they couldn't accept the market price. The sellers encountered the offers. So I would imagine you're telling me that the business had a specific valuation they were asking and it didn't meet those expectations and they weren't happy with those offers and countered and asking for a little bit more. Yeah, we we may not have gone to market with a price, but the market did start telling us uh, because we got offers and the last offer uh, I think was for around about $4 million. And they countered back another two or $300,000 and the buyer walked. So they had a firm offer on the table within what the market was telling them the business was worth. And they wanted a little bit more. So they countered and the buyer walked, huh? Right. Then the pandemic occurred and the business crashed. So we're talking sporting equipment. So it's really tied to schools and things like that. Right. Yes. Yeah. It was youth oriented. And did the business ever sell? Uh, yes, it did. It just Closed on it recently, uh, last week, I think, or uh, two weeks ago. It sold for 550000 So we dropped from the firm offer on the table for $4 million, and they actually closed on the business later at $550,000. So what's that, about an 80% drop in value? Right, and that essentially was just the inventory uh, value. Wow. That is a big, big haircut. So did they own any of the real estate? I mean, if, if they're inventorying a lot of equipment and stuff like that, they have to have a place to store it and warehouse it. Did they own the building or did the business own the building or the partners own the building? What happened? Yeah, there were, there were two partners and one partner owned the building on his own. Pretty large building, I think 50,000 square feet. And he was anxious to sell the building more so than the business because the value of the building was was much higher so he ultimately did sell the building first so the the buyers who just purchased it has to relocate the business mm-hmm. well i would imagine if i'm thinking through the mechanics of this transaction then we have two partners one that owned the building and you're telling me the business sold for inventory and i don't know if the inventory was financed or owned outright but regardless, there was very little sales proceeds that came out of the sale of the business itself, but the partner with the real estate probably did okay with the real estate. So he probably wasn't all that concerned or less concerned than the partner that had no real estate on what the business sale actually produced. He was more driven by a need to retire or a desire to fade out. And the, the business had other assets, which didn't transfer with the sale. They had a considerable amount of cash and 
the net proceeds might have been higher than 550. Regardless, I guess the big takeaway here is what would you say? Don't be greedy. Don't be too greedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say you should listen to the market. If uh, you get a number of offers and they tend to hover around a number, the market is telling you something. And at certain points, like playing 21 when you've already got 18 in your hand, risky. Yeah, the probabilities can stack up against you. You may win, but the higher probability is that you may not. And in this particular situation, especially that you can't control events, and the pandemic was uh, one of those black swan events that happens every hundred years or so, just cannot anticipate them. And sometimes holding out for that extra few dollars just isn't worth the risk. As you say, holding 18 or 19 in a blackjack hand, maybe it's better just go with your hand instead of rolling the dice on the next card. Well, that's an interesting story and certainly relevant here in the pandemic times. We're kind of on the tail end or hopefully the tail end of the pandemic where things are starting to loosen up and starting to return to some level of normalcy in in the economy. Well, I think it's a cautionary tale for those out there that we will have other events. The pandemic may surface and have a resurgence again at some point in time. And sometimes having an offer on the table that's a solid offer that has a high probability of closing an extra of 5%, 6%, 7%, whatever it is, may not be worth holding out for. Because you just don't know what the future holds, do you, these days? No, we've had all sorts of things happen to us uh, along those lines, even without a major worldwide pandemic. That's true. I mean, every deal has a component that's unpredictable. Yeah, we've had uh, sellers die in the middle of a transaction. And, of course, the transaction imploded. Yeah, unforeseen events. Well, let's move on, Ian. Shift gears here a little bit for our audience here that can learn some of the things they can do to position their company properly to maximize and optimize the value that they've spent sometimes decades trying to create. Yeah, one uh, example is uh, turned out very well for the sellers is uh, a company that uh, was involved in testing for, for radiation. And uh, the two shareholders company was based here in the Bay Area. Okay, so let's get an understanding of this company. Testing for radiation, is this on computers or cell phones or tablets and things like that? Or is it radiation in the ground or something? Yes, it's uh, appliance radiation like cell phones and other things that emit electromagnetic radiation. So their customers or clients were not the consumer necessarily. It was really the manufacturer of those electronic appliances. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So do they get kind of a stamp like the UL stamp? Is that something that they get kind of a certification that goes on the packaging or something like that? Yeah, the most common you see for things like cell phones is the EA. That designation means it's been tested and approved, similar to UL for appliances. Hmm. Okay, well, that's something I'll take note of, actually. I hadn't uh, really thought about that, but I guess when I buy my next phone here, I'm going to take a look. (laughs) Well, I don't even think you can buy one that doesn't have some kind of certification on it. So, All right. See, shows you how much I know. (laughs) The government's taking care of you, I think. So this company, these two shareholders, 
uh, active owner operators, uh, one of whom was getting ready to retire. Uh, they had some majority partners in Taiwan and they wanted to buy them out. So they had us do a valuation and we came in at 8.3 million and then they bought out the Taiwanese shareholders and then we went to market. Just to get the context what we're talking about here, you did a valuation primarily to value the company so that they could acquire or buy out their other shareholders that were overseas. And then after all of that had taken place, then the business was packaged for sale at that point in time. Did I get the dynamics of that right? I don't know if they actually shared the number that we came up with. We did it jointly with a valuation firm. They may have shared it with their partners or maybe not. But in any case, that was what got the ball rolling. And so the business is now positioned for sale. And this is kind of a specialized type of company. There's probably not a whole bunch of companies out there like this. I could be wrong, but that appears to me to be the case. Who would be the interested buyers out there? Uh, did you have any identified or was it just take all comers? Well, we weren't too fussy, but we knew some likely strategic buyers and we approached them. But we approached pretty much the universe of buyers at the same time. See, this seems like a deal that private equity might have been interested in. Did any of those come to the table? Yes, they did. They uh, kind of swarmed in actually and ultimately we had five offers, three from private equity groups, and two from strategic buyers. Who would the strategic buyers have been in this? I'm trying to think of who it would be. Well, one was Underwriters Laboratories, since they're in the testing business. So that's the UL you see on electronic parts, electrical parts, that stamp UL. Right. Right. Okay. They're a pretty big operation. I guess they're a public company, right? Uh I think they're employee-owned. I think they're private, yeah. Yeah, okay. Employee-owned? Okay. Yeah, but a large company, I believe at that time, they were about $2 billion in revenue. Mm -hmm. And then the other company in the similar business, smaller, but NASDAQ company, that was the other strategic buyer. Mm -hmm. We may have found some others, but those two were the only strategics that came in with an offer. Mm -hmm. Well, when you have multiple people at the table, that changes the dynamics uh, considerably, especially if it's a niche player like this uh, can really have a dramatic impact on valuation and what people are willing to pay. Yes, indeed. It also points out that in this particular example, that private equity buyers are sometimes not the right candidate. Their offers came in fairly low, uh, even lower than the valuation that we had done. Although we, we didn't go to market with the price, there was no price announced. This kind of an open auction type of situation where people just submitted their best offer? Yes. We had five offers more or less simultaneously. That's a great position to be in. For a seller, it sure is, yeah. Yeah, we did a good job for your client there. And so I'm just kind of curious if you can share either on a percentage basis of over that valuation you got to buy out the partners, other shareholders, to what actually closed at. The uh, closing price was uh, $12 million. So roughly a little less than a 50% increase. 50%. That's really dramatic. Yeah. Private equity groups kind of served as fodder, I guess. Uh, I think their their offers were in the 5 or $6 million range. Because private equity groups in most, not all cases, but in the large majority of cases, tend to be financial buyers. Right. At least that's my experience is they tend to crunch those numbers. And unless they're a platform and they're trying to roll up companies where 
a company may have more intrinsic value than the actual economic value. They tend to be primarily driven by the financials and cash flow. So that's probably one of the reasons their offers were much lower, where these other two were very strategic and combining what this company did with what they were doing had a lot more value, I uh, would be my guess, than what the numbers actually validated or showed. Yeah, and it's also a matter of deep pockets, too. I think you know, private equity groups tend to rely on some kind of financing, and that limits their pricing. In this case, Champion um, had very deep pockets, so an extra few million here and there, no big deal. Well, it's nice to have those type of deep pockets and be dealing with a buyer that has those deep pockets. It makes a big difference in what the actual outcome is going to be. I'm just kind of curious, on a situation like this where you have radiation testing, was there any holdbacks for earnings or performance-related holdbacks, or were there any holdbacks at all? Uh, there were holdbacks, but only for liabilities or, for example, AR that might go bad, that sort of thing. So primarily over a period of, what, two, three, four years, as long as there were no claims against the company, then the holdbacks were paid out kind of on a prorated basis over a period of time? It was paid out back over one-third each year for three years. So a million dollars a year in, in holdbacks were paid as long as the liabilities uh, didn't emerge. And there turned out to be none. Well, that's a relatively clean deal. Yeah. Sometimes it gets really dicey when you have holdbacks that are tied to performance or some very difficult to quantify variable that uh, you can end up arm wrestling over what that holdback should be or not be. So this was pretty straightforward. So kind of a takeaway here for those listening and the audience, what would you say is the thing that you should have your radar up when you're thinking of selling and valuing your company? Well, Obviously, you'd like to get into a similar situation that these folks enjoyed, and it doesn't happen all the time. But the uh, key really is to cast a very wide net for all types of buyers for the deal. Now, they talked about private equity groups. They weren't really in the running, but the other two buyers, the strategic buyers, didn't know what their prices were. And so, in fact, that the private equity group buyers dropped out early and uh, just the two strategic buyers were bidding and they, they came within a million dollars of each other in the end but the point i was trying to make was that casting a wide net allows the seller the luxury of an auction a number of buyers at the same time to help drive up the price well i guess what you're also saying as i'm kind of thinking through this transaction and how it unfolded is that you had a third party do a valuation that came up in the eight million dollar range and that even with that you know, relatively sophisticated valuation it is just that it's an estimate of value it's not necessarily a true indicator of what the intrinsic value of a company is and that the market is really going to be the true indicator. It's really going to establish what that company is worth. And in this case, for those buyers, it was worth a whole lot more than what traditional valuation methods really indicated. And even what the private equity, which is generally driven by metrics and cash flow of what they can leverage through debt, was not as great as the strategic value to these other two companies that came to the table. So to me, that's a, a significant thing that if there are people out there that are listening, thinking about exiting at some point in time, just really who would value your company 
Because uh, if you go out and get a third-party valuation, they're going to crunch numbers and they're going to look at comparables of similar companies in your industry that have sold and what multiples they've sold at. They're going to come up with an estimate. But, you know, perhaps the true value of your company needs to be given some thought about how to strategically position it uh, to be of uh, interest to someone that could add it to what they're doing that would make it more valuable, either because of their customer base or the market that they're in or the accretive value of uh, your service offering or the products that you have. So as Ian has said here, if you can position it properly to the right people, cast that net, make it wide enough, get a lot of people at the table, I can make a huge difference in what the outcome of your eventual exit is going to be. Well, when we are on our last transaction we want to chat about here today, Ian, why don't you talk about something that, let's say, is related to the pandemic. Do you have a transaction that had a positive driver created by the pandemic? Uh, yes, we did. And um, it might not occur to most, but uh, a business that benefits and still is benefiting from the pandemic is uh, nurseries. Uh, plant nurseries. All heard stories about people staying at home during lockdown and fiddling with their garden, growing vegetables, and doing all those kind of healthy, relaxing things. And so uh, nursery businesses have boomed. There was an immediate spike, actually, as soon as the pandemic hit, or as soon as the lockdown started happening. So this nursery, had it been around a long time and had a long history, a newer company? Tell me a little bit about the company and the owner. been around for decades. And in fact, I, my wife had um, bought stuff there for a long time. They do mail order as well, but they didn't own the real estate, but they had a long-term lease and then operated basically almost bare land. So we have a gardening business here, you know, uh, you know, nursery. Who were the buyers of this? Was it another nursery or was it somebody totally independent, just another entrepreneur that wanted to get into the business and liked it? We actually had a, a number of buyers, again, also a number of offers, uh, but the buyer that eventually bought it had owned or at least been partial owner in, I believe, a produce business, had exited that and was looking for something else to do. And how did the transaction unfold? Did it go relatively quickly? Uh, did it get dragged out uh, because of the pandemic? Or was it a driver to close quickly? Because would imagine if what you're telling me is that sales were spiking and they spiked relatively quickly, that probably drove up profits very substantially in the short term anyway. Did the buyer try to capture that increase in revenue and close quickly? quickly or how did that transaction unfold? The buyer was perhaps uh, considering the other story we told earlier, shouldn't be criticized for it, but she overanalyzed the business. Very simple business to pick up a plant and pay your money and, and then you then you go. So she drug out the process considerably. The lender, even though the business had superlative numbers, the lender, as all the SBA lenders were immediately when the shutdown occurred, almost stopped doing anything. So that took some time. But Mainly, the buyer insisted on extreme analysis and drug out the transaction to her cost because at this time, at that period, the business was netting about $50,000 in a month. Every month that she delayed uh, drug it out, it was costing her $50,000. Well, that adds up very quickly. <laughs> it does, yeah. So, she eventually closed and the lender eventually funded and the seller stayed on for a period of time and transition. Part of the problem was that there was a clash in personalities, which slowed things down as well. Well, I've often found that having a good 
representation for the M&A advisor or the business brokers involved that if you have people involved in the transaction that can facilitate and smooth out the bumps when there is a clash in personalities more than pays for the cost of bringing those professionals in to keep the deal on track and keep the egos uh, at bay sometimes is well worth the dealing with real professionals. The two agents that were involved have been with me for some time, one one agent perhaps uh almost three decades. And so uh, he, he knew what he was doing and he, and he had a t- he was representing the buyer. He had a, a tough challenge with the buyer, but basically all the negotiations went through the agents rather than face-to-face. Well, it sounds like the takeaway in this situation, sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time and you get the right buyer and the right seller together and with the right financing in place and things work out. And in this particular case, when you have a big spike because of an outside event, timing is important in the selling of a business. So for those out there listening in, you have to keep that in mind that timing is something that you have some measure of control over, but it's the events that emerge as you are positioning your business for sale that timing is actually extraordinarily crucial. And you sometimes you just have to be aware of that timing. Any other big takeaways in this transaction, Ian? No, I think the, the big takeaway was in some respects, it was surprising that it went together because as I mentioned, the, the personalities of the buyer and seller were quite different. Uh, one was extreme analyst and the uh, other was a, a real people person. In the very limited time that they actually interfaced, it was a little bit Rocky. Well, Ian, this has been fascinating. Some pandemic-driven stories, good and bad, that turned out well. Some real takeaways on what it means to be involved in a competitive situation where you can actually have strategics bidding up the price of your business and how real critical that is. And we're just appreciative of you taking the time. I mean, you've been in the business for decades and of taking some of your transactional stories and sharing them with our listeners today and uh, our podcast. So want to thank you for your time. If uh, folks wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you, chat a little bit about their situation perhaps and how you can maybe help them, uh, how would they reach out and get a hold of you? Well, either my cell phone, which is the only phone I have, and uh, email. It's ian at business-team.com. That's simple enough. All right. Well, Ian, thank you for your time today. Appreciate you sharing your experiences. Until our next episode of Business Exit Stories, we will see you next time around. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember... Maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.